Well, if you have children, uh, kindergarten to third grade that are going to children's church, they can uh, dismiss out the back uh, with Miss Melody. And for the rest of you, welcome to Living Hope Church. Uh, if you're an older child and you'd like to follow along with the sermon, there are sermon notes designed for you on the back table. Um, there's also different activities and toys that you can use and play with. You come and see me afterwards with your sermon notes. I'll have a piece of candy for you. Uh, well, if you weren't with us last week, we have begun a new series, which we have titled Shining Like Stars uh, in Babylon. Uh, and Babylon represents the world, as we talked about last week. But this title comes from Daniel 12, 3, which reads, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. And so God, through Daniel, says that our primary job as uh, followers of Jesus as we live out our lives is to, uh, in this world is to shine. It is to be a um, light of hope for God in this world. And as we do, we desire to lead uh, those around us to righteousness, which is found in Jesus alone. So that's kind of the theme. That is our desire as we walk through this series to kind of unpack and study and see how we uh, are called to live as followers of Jesus in this world. And in this series, we are looking primarily at the book of Daniel, and occasionally we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah provides a parallel account of the same period in history. Uh, and let me kind of try to explain this, because this timeline gets confusing uh, for me in my mind. Uh, in history, God, in his patience, he had been calling Israel to return to him for hundreds of years, over the course of many kings and through the words of many prophets. Uh, God warned the nation of Israel through the prophets that if the people did not return to him, if they didn't repent, then eventually he was going to allow a foreign nation to come and conquer them and carry them off to exile away from their land. Well, the people for generations refused to repent and return to God, so God sends the Babylonians to conquer the nation of Israel. Uh, we saw that last week in Daniel 1. The Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, and when they conquered the nation, they take the best of the best back with them to Babylon. They take the court officials, the outstanding young men, and they put them to work in Babylon. Daniel and his friends that we met last week were within this group. And that initial siege of Jerusalem happened in 605 B.C. There's a great deal of historical documentation outside of the Bible that confirms that this happened. Uh, in fact, if you're a history person, you might remember the Battle of Carchemish. Uh, and that's when the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians to become the superpower of the region and the world. Well, the Israelites at that time had aligned themselves with the Egyptians, and so after Babylon defeated Egypt, they went on down and took care of Jerusalem as well. And so that was 605 B.C. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they raid the temple, they take the best of the best back with them, and they leave kind of a puppet regime in place to run the city and the nation. And so while the book of Daniel is being played out with the exiles in Babylon, which is uh, modern-day Iraq, the prophet Jeremiah remains in Jerusalem, and while he is there, he is still calling the people of Israel to repent, to return to God. And so the books of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel give us parallel versions of the same period in history. Daniel is giving us the story from Babylon, while Jeremiah provides the story from Jerusalem. And so today, we're going to hop over to the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to see this really shocking vision or illustration or parable that God gives to Jeremiah. So we're in Jeremiah uh, chapter 24, if you'd like to head that direction. It begins by saying, After Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials, the skilled workers and artisans of Judah, were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
All right, so we need a little bit more setting. I'm sorry, it's taking a second to set up. But so there was this initial siege uh, uh, of Jerusalem by Babylon in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel and his friends were taken off. That's where, uh, and that's where Jehoiakim was conquered, and Jehoiachin became king. Well, there is a second siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 597 B.C., and this is what they're talking about. This is when Jehoiachin and other officials and skilled workers are also carried off to Babylon. So there's two different sieges that happen. At this time, Jehoiachin, he gives up without a fight. He aligns with the Babylonians, and he heads off to safety there. It's at that point that Zedekiah is going to become king, and we're going to meet him in a second. Uh, he's got some issues, but he is put in charge as a puppet king. And we'll get to this in the coming weeks, but there's going to be a final siege of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. And in 587 B.C., the Babylonians are going to completely overthrow the nation, and they're going to take almost everyone off to exile. But for today's passage, for Jeremiah 24, there have been two sieges of Jerusalem, and a good number of people have been taken to exile in the nation of Babylon. But there is a group, a pretty large group, that still remains in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah remains as God's prophet to those in Jerusalem. And his message again and again, if you read the book of Jeremiah, is to repent or the same is going to happen to you. If you want to read the history of this, you can read it in 2 Kings uh, around chapter 24. But for just a second, I want, to put your, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these two groups. There's those that have been carried off to exile in Babylon, and there's those that remain in Jerusalem. So how would you feel if you were one of those that were taken off to exile in Babylon? All of your life changed in an instant. Your life completely uprooted against your will. You would know that you will probably never return to your nation or your home. How would you feel if, if you were one of those that had been taken away and others remained? I mean, I think I know how I would feel. I would feel like God had abandoned me. I'd feel like he had let me down. It probably led me to reflect on my life and, and what I believe in my faith. It would certainly feel like we who had been carried off had gotten the greater deal of the punishment for the sins of Israel. Now put yourself in the shoes of those still in Jerusalem. For some of them, their neighbors, their friends, some family members might have been taken away. But they had been given a new king. Things seemingly went on as normal for many. Their day-to-day -day lives have been minimally impacted. How would you feel if you were one of those that had been left behind in Jerusalem? I think I know how I would feel, and I think I know what the human instinct is to feel. I think I would have probably puffed my chest up a little bit and stood a little taller. Because obviously God had taken away the worst of the sinners. And me and my family had found some sort of favor with God because he had blessed us by allowing us to stay. And that's exactly how those in Jerusalem felt. They felt that they were special, that they were superior, that they were closer to God than those that had been taken away. But the prophet Jeremiah, he continues to call on them to repent, to turn to God, because he says if they don't, they're going to suffer something greater. But at the same time, there were these other false prophets. We're going to see some of them next week throughout Jerusalem, and they mocked Jeremiah for his words of doom and gloom. They prophesied to the people that were still there that God was going to crush their yoke of oppression. He was going to crush the Babylonians, and soon they would have victory, and all would return to the promised land. Well, who do you think the people listened to? The people listened to the prophets with a happier and easier message. They believed that they were blessed, that they had earned God's favor. So surely they believed that Jeremiah was just overblowing things. And so they would again and again throw him out of the city. But then we get the truth that comes through the words of the prophet. So we're picking up again at that latter half of verse 1. 
It says, so the Lord showed me, Jeremiah, two baskets of figs placed in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. The other basket had very bad figs, so they could not be eaten. Then the Lord asked me, what do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answered. The good ones are very good, but the bad ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. First of all, I love Jeremiah's answer here. He's like, God, I'm not sure where you're going with this, but I see figs. And some are good and some are not good. And again, anyone in Jerusalem would have heard this imagery and they would have instantly assumed that they were the good figs. And that those that had been taken off to Babylon were the rotten figs. That's our natural response. When life is good, when it's comfortable, when it's easy, we assume that God is happy with us and that we are deserving of some extra blessing. When things are difficult, when trials come, when challenges arise, we start to doubt, we start to question. And sometimes we make that leap to, what have I done wrong? Or what is God punishing me for? It's our human assumption to assume that we control this. And that that, and that same assumption was true of the Jews in Jerusalem as they walked the streets with a little strut in their step. All right, let's see what God says about the figs, though. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place, the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. But like the bad figs, which are so bad they cannot be eaten, says the Lord, so will I deal with Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials, and the survivors from Jerusalem, whether they remain in this land or live in Egypt. I will make them abhorrent and an offense to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword, a curse, and an object of ridicule wherever I banish them. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land I gave to them and their ancestors. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for this truth that it reveals about who you are and what it is that you desire. God, I pray that you would uh, just work in our hearts and our minds today, Lord, and that you, would, uh, that you would help us to reflect on our lives and reflect on where it is that our faith and our life uh, has put its trust. God, I pray that you would, um, if we are walking through trial, if we are walking through difficulty, Lord, that we would, we would be reminded of your promises of good and uh, of who you are within that. And God, I pray that if we are living in complacency, God, um, we're living in complacency, believing that, that, that we are uh, something that we are not, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to us and that you would draw us back to, to you. God, we thank you that your ultimate desire is our hearts and our salvation and our soul. And God, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be right with you uh, through the work of Jesus on the cross. God, we love you and we praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right. So our human nature is always to associate our external circumstances with our favor or our relationship with God. Once again, we do tend to assume that if things are good, then we are good. And if things are falling apart, then God must be angry with us. But we see right here and throughout the Bible that our external circumstances here on earth do not necessarily correlate with our relationship with God. F.B. Huey and his commentators, commentary said it like this. He said, if inhabitants of Jerusalem were asked to say which basket represented the favored people and which basket represented those under God's wrath, 
they would have answered that they were the good figs and that the exiles were the bad figs. But to their surprise, God identified the good figs as those in exile. Their deportation was not an accident, but a part of God's redemptive purposes. The future of the nation was going to be with them, not with those in Jerusalem. So God had exiled the good figs to protect them, to bless them, to draw them back to him, and then to draw them ultimately back to Jerusalem, beginning with Ezra and Nehemiah in 538 B.C. And so our first point is this, trials, challenges, and difficulties don't equate to God's abandonment. When we face trials, difficulties, challenges in this life, that does not mean God has abandoned us, that he has given up on us, that he is no longer with us. Your relationship with God is not determined by worldly circumstances. We saw it last week, but Jesus says we are sent to the world, but we are not of this world. For the Christian, this world is not it. This is not all that there is. And God's primary concern for your life is not this world. God's primary concern is your heart, your soul, your salvation, not worldly fulfillment. Now, don't get me wrong. God absolutely cares about what you are going through. The Bible says he even grieves as we suffer under the consequences of sin. But his promise over his followers is forgiveness of sins. It's eternal life, not riches, comfort, and ease in this life today. So let's look at these exiles and what God was doing in their lives. And let's look at the different sufferings and trials we face in this life and how God can possibly use those to renew our hearts to him. With the exiles, their circumstances were in fact due to their nation's sin. They were facing the discipline of God for their sin. But God wasn't disciplining them to get vengeance, but he was instead disciplining them for their own good. They were facing discipline that would draw them back to him that would renew their hearts and their minds and their souls to Him. And there are times in our lives where God allows us to face the consequences of our sin, where He disciplines us. But like a loving parent, this is done for our good, and it is used to draw our hearts back to Him. Proverbs tells us that a good parent disciplines their child because they love them. And when they discipline their child, Proverbs says they are saving their souls, their future from destruction. So if we as parents discipline our children, correct our children for their future benefit, then so too there are times that our loving Heavenly Father disciplines us in order to save us from future destruction and draw us back to Him. And for many of us, this is our our testimony. This is our story. For many of us, it was rock bottom. It was the pain of our sin that led us to God for the first time. And when we, like the Israelites, tell our story, we see that pain not as something bad that happened in our life, But we see that pain as the thing that saved our lives. And so there are times in our life that we face pain, we face difficulty because of our sin. But those times aren't God punishing us, but they are God lovingly allowing us to face consequences in order to save us from future destruction, in order to save our souls. And one of the things we know about God and that we know from the Bible is that anytime God is disciplining us, we will know it's not a mystery to us. Just as a good father doesn't discipline their child and leave it a mystery, God doesn't discipline us and leave us wondering. When a good parent disciplines their child, they tell them why. They tell them what they did wrong. They tell them what's going to happen if they don't uh, correct this pattern, this behavior in their life. They tell them what the future holds if they follow that path and what the future holds if they change. In the same way God had been telling the Israelites this was coming for years, for generations through the prophets. 
These people knew why they were exiled in Babylon. And because they knew, we see here that they accepted the discipline and this led them to return to God. The exiles in Babylon were not being abandoned by God. But instead, God so loved them that he allowed them to be exiled to save their souls and return them to him. But even look at this, even as they face discipline in Babylon, God says that he sees them. God says that he loves them. God says that he protects them. God says he will restore them. God says he will renew their hearts to him. There isn't a glimmer of vengeance here. But it's a picture of a loving father that so loves their child that he will allow them to suffer in the temporary in order to save and restore their souls for eternity. And so if you're here today and you are walking through a difficult time and you know it is the result of your sin, then my encouragement for you is to repent and return to God just as these exiles did. Repent literally means to stop what you are doing and to turn and go the other direction. Whatever the sin is, whatever the path you are on, stop and return to God. He waits for you with open arms, ready to forgive and lead you forward. So I don't know what that might be for you, but for you that may be admitting and getting help for an addiction. It might be getting help and accountability with your resources or your relationships or whatever it is you're struggling with. But know that God is not punishing you in his anger, but he is allowing you to suffer the consequences of your sin today in his grace. So that you might, find, might return to him and renew your heart and find your hope in him. Or maybe you're here or watching online and you've never, uh, never fully trusted Jesus with your life. It's quite possible that God is using the struggle, the challenge in your life today to draw you to him. Perhaps he is using the, the trial to reveal the pursuits, the desires, the dreams of this world aren't all that they're cracked up to be. And so today maybe you are looking for something more. Or maybe you've hit rock bottom and you're just looking for hope. The Bible tells us that is found in Jesus alone. It is in Jesus alone that salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and eternal purpose is found. But you allow this trial to lead you to him. No matter what your past looks like, no matter what you are going through, I want you to know this truth. And that truth is the, the overarching truth of the Bible. And that is that God loves you. Jesus loves you so much that he died uh, for your sins. He died paying the price for your sins. The Bible says the consequence of our sin is e- eternal death separated from God. But Jesus alone, who was sinless, went to the cross and paid the price for your sins through his death. And then three days later, he rose victorious over death and he offers you his forgiveness and his life. He loves you so much that he offers complete forgiveness in him if you will repent and turn and follow after him. And you can do that today. There, there's no magic words. You can pray something with a surrendered heart as simply as, God, I know I have sinned against you. I know that you love me. I know that you sent Jesus to die the death I deserve. And I know he rose victorious over death. God, I want to turn from my sin. and I want to follow you the rest of the days of my life. The Bible says you pray with a surrendered heart, something that simple. You will be forgiven and you will inherit eternal life with him. No matter where you are today, allow your circumstances to return you to God. So that was the exiles. They were facing uh, discipline for their sin and and they allowed it to return them to God. Uh, And in in, in this story in Jeremiah, we see that there are times that God allows us to suffer in order to turn us to him. But it's always with the desire to restore us or draw us back to him. 
And when he does so, he doesn't abandon us, but he still sees us. He still loves us. He still protects us. And he still longs to redeem us if we will turn to him. One more thing I want to say on this, and that is that all suffering is not due to our sin. We said it earlier, but we like to believe that our quality of life is directly linked to our behavior in God's favor. But that's not reality, and that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that there are at least two other reasons why we suffer and why we face trial and, and hard times in this life. The first of those reasons is, the, is simply the fall of man and the sin that contaminates all of the world. Paul writes in Romans 8, 22 through 23, We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of child, childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says that all of creation groans under the weight of sin. The world is full of sin. It is broken, it is messed up, and it is not how God created it to be. Because, and because of that presence of sin, it is, it is broken. And Paul says, along with creation, we as humans groan inwardly as we long for our bodies to be redeemed one day in eternity. But as for now, in this life, our bodies suffer. Our bodies break down. Our bodies get sick. Our bodies get cancer. But the primary uh, reason that happens is not because of sin in our life, but because of the broken, sinful nature of our world. So there are times that we face suffering in this world just because of the broken nature of the world. It is the natural uh, suffering that all of humanity faces as it lives in this world. But we have hope because there is a future glory where we will be with God in heaven and there will be no more suffering, no more trial, no more death, and no more tears. But we're not there yet. So as long as we are here on earth, we groan and we experience pain and suffering in our world as humanity as a whole deals with the consequence of sin. Jesus says the same thing in John 16, He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world we will have trouble. You will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So trouble, suffering, difficulty are just a part of life here on earth. But we hope and long for eternity with our Savior who has overcome the world. The other reason the Bible tells us we face suffering, trial, and, and persecution on this earth is because of our faith in Jesus. In fact, the Bible promises that as we walk with God, we will face valleys, we will face persecution, and we will face trials. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that we will face persecution because of him. We will be betrayed and hated because of him. Jesus tells us that if we follow God, there will be times that we face persecution and trials because of our faith. We spent a lot of time on this last week, but, we are, uh, but if we are following God, then we will look different than the rest of the world. And it is that difference that allows us to shine, to be set apart and point others to the hope we have in Jesus. But the world doesn't always understand why we are different. And there will be times that our difference will lead to trial. Now, sometimes those trials might be as simple as obeying God with our finances and because of that delaying a purchase or not buying the jacked up truck that everyone else has. Sometimes following Jesus may mean skipping the after party or leaving the party early because it, before it turns into something that would tempt us or something that we don't need to be a part of. Sometimes following Jesus might mean a loss of a friendship or a relationship because the other person can't understand your beliefs or because they desire to cross a boundary that the Bible says not to cross. All of those things are difficult and challenging and can hurt. And by God's grace, we, we live in a country with a lot of freedoms. But there are many places in this world where people are imprisoned, beaten, and killed for their faith. 
And these people have made the decision that Jesus is worth it. And they find their joy and their hope in him despite the threat of suffering and persecution. So in this life, we will suffer for our faith. And Jesus doesn't say that's just a maybe, but he says it's a promise. So in this life, we face three types of suffering. We face suffering because of the consequences of our sin. That was the exiles. We face suffering because we live in a fallen world. And we will face suffering because of our faith. But none of those sufferings mean God has abandoned us. But instead, each of those are an opportunity for God to show us his grace, reveal his character and his sufficiency, and he promises to use it for our good. Paul, in that same Romans 8 passage, makes this amazing promise. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul says in all things, not just the easy things, God works them for the good of those who love him. God worked the exile for the good of those that loved him. And he can and will do the same with your circumstances if you will turn them to him, trust him, and lean into his presence and goodness. Unfortunately today, we don't have the time to completely unpack that amazing promise. But if you are here today and you are walking through trial, and you want to know more about this promise of good in your life, I would encourage you to go back and listen to a sermon we preached just on this verse. It was on September 27th of 2020. It's titled, The Promise of Good. Go back and listen to that and hear what God speaks over your life. Or maybe you're here today and you are just in despair in your trials. And you don't know where to turn or what to do. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to a sermon we preached on Elijah on February 7th, 2021. It's titled, Embracing God in the Midst of Despair. It's a a sermon on how to find hope in God as our life falls apart. So our external circumstances, our external sufferings don't equate to God's abandonment. In fact, our external sufferings are often God's grace in our life. The second thing we see in this passage is the flip side of that. And that is that our external comfort, blessing, and ease does not necessarily equate to God's favor. There's a big caveat in that point in the form of the word necessarily, but because the truth is God is a good father, and he has blessed us extravagantly in this life. For most of us, God has provided well beyond what we need to get by. We are a blessed people. But because we are a blessed people, it is really easy for us to forget our dependency and our need for God. It is really easy for us to forget that it is God who has blessed us. And it is really easy to assume that our hearts are right with God when life is comfortable. That was the Israelites in Jerusalem. They assumed that their blessing of remaining in the land, their blessing of being born Jewish, their blessing of comfort and ease meant that God, that they had God's favor and their hearts were right before Him. They equated their external circumstances of ease to mean that they were right with God. But we see it couldn't have been farther from the truth. But that's the warning for us today. We talked about it, but we so often believe that lie that when life is hard, God must be mad at us. But when life is easy, God must be happy with us. But neither of those are necessarily true. I think about the different places I have lived. And there are so many people in Oregon, in Montana, now in in Wyoming, that live pretty good lives. And because they live pretty good lives and they were born in America, which we equate as being a Christian nation, people assume they are right with God. These are people that believe in God, that think he is a good thing. 
They think he's especially a great thing for their children to know about, but they have never repented from their sin and trusted God in their lives. They believe in God, but they have never surrendered their lives, their plans to follow him. And the sad thing there are, is that there are many of those people who show up every Sunday and they sit in churches in an attempt to please God and earn his favor and his blessing on Monday. But sadly, they have never surrendered and experienced his forgiveness, his grace, and his eternal life. External riches, comfort, ease, and blessing do not equate to a relationship with God. Many Americans are these people left behind in Jerusalem. We look at the rest of the world and we see the famine, the war, the poverty, and we assume there must be something special about us. And in that we miss God and we miss what he desires for us, which is for us to turn our hearts to him. In Matthew 7, Jesus makes one of the the most troubling statements in the Bible. try this. Uh, He says, in the last days, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And what this means is there will be some that played religious games, that attended church every Sunday, that looked good to the world, but never experienced the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They played religious games to appease God, to remain in control, and to leverage Him for something in their life. Yet they never experienced the grace, the forgiveness, a relationship with Jesus that saves. But instead they chose to try and control and earn their salvation on their own. And so, my friends, let this passage be a warning today. That just because life is going swimmingly in this world, that doesn't mean your heart is right with God. So please pause and look beyond the day-to-day and make sure your heart is right before God. Make sure you have received His forgiveness, His eternal life, and His renewed heart. And that leads to our final point today. And that is that God's desire is to transform, it is to renew our hearts. We see God's primary desire in verses 5 through 7. It reads, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, like these good figs, I regard as as good the exiles from Judah whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. God's primary desire is for us to return to him, and when he do, he will give us a heart to know him. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Jesus, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. God's primary desire for your life for our lives is to transform our hearts and make them new in him. 
And when we see the word heart here, it means it encompasses all of us. God desires to transform all of us. Our hearts, our minds, our souls, our wants. He desires to transform them to be like him and the things he desires. We see that in this passage in, in three ways. First, they're given a new heart. We talked about it. It says, and I will give them a new heart to know me, for I am the Lord. They're given a new identity in, in God. They say, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And then they're given a new loyalty. It says, for they will return to me with their whole heart. God's primary desire for your life is to make you a new creation in him. And it is as a new creation in him. It is in his grace that we are enabled to shine in Babylon in the midst of this world. God has made a way through Jesus to restore us to him, to forgive us of our sins, to give us a new heart in him. And it is in Jesus alone that we can experience spiritual restoration today. So as we wrap up our service today, we're going to take some time and just reflect on that new heart offered and that new heart given in Jesus who was taking the Lord's Supper. And so first, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, then you have been given forgiveness in Jesus. You have been given a new heart that seeks after him first and foremost. So we want to give thanks during this time. But also during this time, we want to repent in those areas where we have wandered and began to chase after our own glory, our own pride, and our own pleasure as opposed to God. So in just a moment, we are going to remember Jesus' sacrifice and the forgiveness the new heart and new life we have in him through the Lord's Supper. But I'm going to ask you, if you are a follower of Jesus, before you come and take the elements, I want to ask you to examine your heart, to ask God to reveal those areas in your life that you are not pursuing him, to reveal those areas of sin in your life. And as God reveals those areas, I would encourage you to humbly repent and turn those over to him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that this is a serious thing. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So in just a second, Melinda's going to come and play. And I would encourage you to take as long as you need to examine your life, to give thanks for your salvation, for the forgiveness, for the new life you have received through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then when you are ready, you can come and, and take of the elements and take them back to your seat, and then we will partake together. But there are likely some here today that are not yet followers of Jesus. If that's you, the Bible is clear that the Lord's Supper is to be taken by those that are already followers of him. But this is not wasted time for you. I would encourage you to uh, encourage you and ask you during this time to examine your heart, to examine your life, your eternity, your relationship with God. It is quite possible that you, like so many, have based your salvation, your future on external circumstances instead of Jesus. You have assumed that you are a fairly good person. Your life is good. You live in America. Then God must be pleased with you. And you've left it at that. If that's you, I want you to know that God loves you. That Jesus gave his life for you. And that he longs for you to repent and turn to him. And when you do, he will completely forgive you of your sins. And he will grant you eternal life in him. So if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, I would ask you to use this time to reflect on your life. And I would encourage you to turn and trust him with your life today. Again, you can do that right now as Melinda plays. I'll be up here in the front if you want someone to talk to where you in your seat with a surrendered heart can trust Jesus today. So for all of us, as Melinda plays, I'd ask you to bow your head and examine your life with God. And then when you're ready, you can come and take of the elements and take them back to your seat and we'll partake together. But first, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you. 
that you love us. That while we were in our sin, you still loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die and to pay the price, the penalty that our sin deserved. God, we thank you that we have offered to us eternity, new life, salvation in Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us during this time to reflect and to give thanks for what you've already done in our lives. God, I pray that as we reflect, Lord, that you would also reveal in our lives those areas where we have wandered. Where we have wandered into sin, where we have turned from you, where we have turned to the things of this world. God, would you reveal those areas and would you give us the courage to repent and turn to you? And God, I pray if there's any here today that are uh, like those exiles still in Jerusalem, God, I pray that they would heed Jeremiah's call to repent. That they would find their hope not based on the external or worldly circumstance of their life, but they, they would find their hope, their peace, their joy, their forgiveness in you alone. God, I pray if there's anyone here uh, that, is, that is in that place today, Lord, that you would reveal their need for you. God, that you would give them the courage to repent and turn to you. God, we thank you so much that in you there is no condemnation, there is no shame, there is forgiveness and love alone. God, we thank you for that. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
to figure it out to get our two different paths and pull this way clear land and then get to the process of drilling it. So it doesn't get overly more complicated and stuff. In 1 Corinthians 11:23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Dear Lord, we thank you um, again for your love and for your grace uh, that you sent in the form of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus went to the cross and he died the death that my sin and our sin deserved. And God, we thank you that through his sacrifice, life and forgiveness is available to all. So Lord, we thank you for that in our lives. Uh, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Paul then writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. He says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you uh, just again for uh, Jesus' sacrifice and his bloodshed, which covers our sin and makes us white as snow. Lord, we thank you for the exchange that took place on that cross um, that makes us righteous uh, and pure in your sight. Lord, we thank you that in you there is no more guilt, there is no more shame, there is no more sin. God, may we find our hope and our peace and our identity in you alone. God, we love you and it's your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning as we worship together and study uh, God's Word. Uh, we just have just a couple of announcements uh, today. Uh, and those announcements are, first of all, we have small group tonight here at the church at 6 o'clock. Uh, we'd love for you to join us for that. And then on Wednesdays, we have youth group and we have kids night, which meets here at the church uh, from 6 to 7. And we'd love to join. We'd love for you to join us at that as well. If you have questions about either of those things, uh, you can come and talk with me and I would love to answer your questions. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we hope to see you uh, again next week.